0: And now, The Low
1: Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Tuesday afternoon. The All-Star break is over. The All-Star game sucked. Buyout season is in full effect. And to help us dissect the most potentially impactful, polarizing, strange, maybe insane, maybe so insane it ends up being genius buyout move, our Clippers insider, Oh Young Masuk. How are you, sir?
2: What up, Zach? You know, I always try to bring it with the background. I apologize for the technical difficulties. I am in Hawaii. I tried to give you world-famous Waikiki Beach behind me, but due to technical difficulties, I couldn't make it happen. Actually, Zach, uh, this is actually one of the first sunny days I've had here. I've been here since Wednesday. It's been raining. There's been like two weather storms just hovering above the island.
1: Well, let me tell you this. I also skipped All-Star. Uh, because it aligned with my daughter's school vacation and her birthday. And we went to Disney World in oh. Orlando, Florida. And I have now, having been there for the first time since I was about 10 years old, I have just scorching Disney World takes that I don't even know if I'm allowed to say them. I should say them. I should not say them. <laughs> but I got like a 90-minute Disney World podcast in me that if the people demand it, I will start giving hot Disney takes. I got hot Disney World takes. I got them.
2: Zach, you need to do that podcast with the Lopez brothers. That's what you need to do. Oh,
1: that's a great idea. Look at this. I bring you on, you give me ideas. Nate. Speaking speaking of ideas, let's go through some ideas to fix the All-Star Game. Because I didn't watch the All-Star Game until last night and I and I and I turned it on and I thought it there's just no way it's gonna be as bad as the Twitter reaction was. And it was worse. It was actually worse. I don't know what my favorite moment of it was. It, it, it's like a five-way tie between when Jason, Jason Tatum brought the ball up on a fast break, stuck it behind his back, and then attempted to flip it over his head for a lob pass to somebody that went horribly wrong. Um, I don't know if it was um, when TNT had Luka Doncic mic'd up while he was playing in the game, which is something that, by the way, gets negotiated with the league, with its broadcast partners. And so you can sit here and say, blame the players for giving no effort, right? And we'll talk about the players who just totally mailed that game in. When you as a league decide to mic up a player in a game and the broadcast partner, and I don't want to pretend that ESPN, ABC, Disney would be above doing this like TNT did, because we're, we're probably not. Uh, when you all agree to mic up a player while he's playing in a basketball game and start asking him questions, like Brian Anderson was asking him, trying to ask him a question about the difference between U.S. and international hoops while the game is going on, uh, you're sending a message that like we don't even expect this guy to be trying during the game. We're interviewing him in the game. So there was that. There was every time there was an end of you know the, each quarter is now is now a, a game unto itself for charity. Poor Reggie Miller. Candace Parker and Brian Anderson on the broadcast are trying to are trying to gin up like oh here we go down, yeah, a minute yeah. left down five d- here, d- the stakes are getting high there was there was a there was one time it was like a t- team LeBron in desperation mode here and oh there's a one legged three by Embiid that's off and there was another one where Reggie was like we might be seeing some defense here toward the end of the quarter as Siakam goes untouched for a layup I mean the whole game was just a complete joke. And I'm of two minds about this, Om. On the one hand, this is like the rational endgame of, now I don't even want to say player empowerment, just like of the players make so much money, they don't need to try in the All-Star game. They don't need to risk being injured in the All-Star game. They don't get anything directly from winning or playing the All-Star game. That's not exactly true. We'll get to that. They get They get a small amount for them of money. But there's no, like, why would if I'm just pick a player if I'm a max player, what what what? Why would I try in the All Star game? What what's in it for me? And and then I thought, well, all the people complaining about the All Star game, like no one's making you watch it. Just don't watch the All Star game. But then if you zoom out further, if you keep sending the message to your fans that you shouldn't watch your marquee mid season event because it stinks and you shouldn't watch, I don't know, 25% at minimum of a team's regular season games because their stars are being load managed. At some point, the golden goose is going to get less golden because you've sent your message to the fans that a a certain percentage of these games are worthless. And that all-star game was horrible. All that said, um, in 2020, which is not that long ago, the all-star game with this same format was amazing. It was amazing. And it was amazing because it was fresh. And down the stretch of the game, they played like real basketball. They they were picking out mismatches. They were, there was strategy. They were running plays. They were playing hard. And I, I, there's, there, there, was like kind of a story that team Giannis that year ran its late game offense through Joel Embiid. And it was like, Oh, that's interesting. They've all decided like Joel Embiid is the alpha on this team and part of it was because I think Kyle Lowry was playing Chris Paul was playing Giannis was playing like these insane competitive people were playing but this so that's only three years ago so it can work and sometimes the game just kind of organically springs forth but man that game on Sunday that was closer to a Globetrotters game than it was to an NBA game and I don't really know what the solution is. Do you have any ideas for how to fix this?
2: It, it felt like the, the the years leading up to when we got that Elam ending to change things around, where like people were just like, "What is going on with the All Star Game? This is BS," and these guys don't care. I mean, like I, you know, I got this sense in talking to players in the in the leading days up to All Star when they were selecting teams that guys were kind of looking forward to just having the break. And I think this break feels longer than normal. Um, I think they expanded a little bit more, especially for teams that like end on Wednesday and things like that. And so some of these guys, they, they, they'll they still say, look, it's always an honor to be named all-star and you want to be an all-star, but they also don't want to be there. And I don't know what the answer is to making them want to be there. If you up the ante and say the winner wins $2 million or something like that, that doesn't still doesn't mean anything to them. If you were to say, You know, the Eastern Conference, if you do like baseball, Eastern Conference gets home court advantage in the finals or the Western Conference, whoever wins. But we don't do it by conference anymore Uh, unless. Yeah, I don't know. It's if you were to do Team USA versus international All-Stars, I think that'd be interesting for the fans. But at the same time, what would make the players really want to try to win that game? Are they really playing for, you know, international or country pride? They're not because it's not like they're playing for a gold medal. At the end of the day, it's still going to be the same thing. They don't want to get hurt, right? So I don't know what it is. The only thing I will have say that I have hope, Zach, is that the dunk contest came back. And because the dunk contest came back and had some sizzle, and I didn't think, I thought for a long time we would never see the dunk contest the way it was back in the day. But to see it kind of come back a little bit due to Mac McClung, bringing back that energy and that juice and that excitement, maybe we can eventually get the all-star back. I'll tell you this, Zach. Try listening to the All-Star Game on the radio, which I do almost every All-Star break when I go to Hawaii or something like that. I usually try to spend my time in the ocean listening to the game on the radio. And uh, shout out to Kesty. He does a great job calling the game every year. But try listening to the All-Star Game. That All-Star Game on the radio It was horrible. The game was unwatchable.
1: And even the the participants in the game were like, yeah, it was unwatchable. And like I said, I don't even blame the players. Like, I wouldn't play – I wouldn't play – it's so easy to say, like, don't you have any pride? Your basketball players back in the day, it was a rivalry thing and people went at it. And like, yeah, of, of course, I would like them to – they should try for 10 minutes. We should get 10 minutes of actual basketball. Can you give me 10 minutes of real basketball? Other than that, I, I get why – They don't try like there's no incentive really for them to do it. And so so here's so solution one to fixing this is try. And I do think that game three years ago is evidence that one out of every few years you will get this magical organic chemical reaction of like the right players are on the floor. I I don't know if, if what reasons there were for trying in 2020. That was right after. Um, Kobe had passed away and they did the twenty-four, the, the plus twenty-four points. They had the trophy named after him. Maybe that was part of it. Whatever it was, there was this sort of thing that happened, and that will happen again. So that's solution number one. Let's talk about the money. Stan Van Gundy was the latest to pitch the money. He said, winner take all, a million bucks a player. That'll get him to play. So presently, and I did some 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 made some calls and did some searching here. Here's the money that currently exists. Everyone on the winning team right now gets a hundred thousand bucks. Everyone on the losing team gets 25,000 bucks. That's obviously not enough to make the players care. It's something, it's not nothing, but it's not enough to make them care. The money thing is complicated for two reasons. Number one, where is the money coming from? Because if it's a million dollars, a player or whatever it is, that's 12, 13, whatever, 12 million dollars. Um, it has to come from somewhere. I, I don't think the union would be okay with it coming out of the fifty-one percent Bri. So it has to be extra money. Who's supplying the extra money? Is it the, the owners out of the goodness of their hearts? That probably isn't going to be it. Is it sponsors? Okay, well that's a lot of money to kick in. And I don't, I just don't think it would go over well if with fans if it's like, oh, now they're trying. I got an now idea. Now this is. Th-
2: I don't know if this is legal. What if oh, what? You, I, love
1: that pre- I love that preface?
2: <laughs> what if because the NBA now is tied into gambling and DraftKings and all that stuff? What if you had fans betting on who would win? And like the lottery, like the real lottery, not the NBA lottery, a portion of that money went to the players who won. And then the rest of it went to whoever like bet on the game. And so like you had a portion of that like 10% or 15% of all the money that everybody bet on this game, the players, whoever won that that game would get it. The other, the other thing I, I have is you have to give the players something they want, right? And, I don't know, a million dollars. The all-stars, they, they all make the most money. What if, like, you got Bentley to sponsor it and the winning team all got Bentleys? You know what I mean? Like, you got to give them something that they want. Like, yes, players already have Bentleys. I get it. But, you know, some don't. What if it's like a souped-up Bentley or specially made Bentley that's only one of 15 Bentleys ever made? You know what I mean? Maybe they would do that. I mean, look, look at what happened, like in, in the World Cup, when that one team, when that one country won, and like you know, some, some some prince basically gave the entire team Bentleys, you know, or Rolls Royces. Let's do that. You know,
1: I can't even wrap my brain around all of the unintended consequences of what you just proposed. But I just think any solution where the players get an enormous amount of stuff is just the optics of it are going to yes, be bad, right or course. wrong. The optics are going to be bad unless you get a million bucks and you get to donate it to a charity of your choice. Something, something like that I think would go well. Um I, I do. I think I kind of think we should go back to East versus West. I like the draft thing. I think the drafting is cool and it's funny. Like when it happens, there's always a moment like Jokic trying not to be picked last or, LeBron and Giannis. Was it LeBron and Giannis? Whoever was snickering about picking Harden last. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was LeBron Durant. and Durant. That's Durant. why it was funny. That's why it was funny. Um, But then the teams get on the floor and it's like, I don't know who's on what team. There's yes. no unifying purpose to why someone is on someone's team and yeah it's kind of cool that like oh teammates are going against each other or donovan mitchell and lowry markinen are on the same team because they were traded for each other that's kind of fun i just i'm watching the game and i'm like i don't even know which team is which and who's playing for whatever purpose east versus west and even east versus west became less meaningful the the more frequently players change teams which by the way that's awesome player empowerment Players determining the course of their careers—that's great. That's that's what regular people get to do. They should get to do that too. So east versus west in the eighties was like it was the same guys on different teams every year on the, on the opposing teams every year. That became less the case as we got into the two thousands. But I think that would still be better. At least I would understand like why one guy's on one team and one guy's on another team. The one thing I will say is the the people who think who say we should go back to east versus west and the winner gets home court advantage in the finals, that's insane. We should never have this exhibition game determining something like whether the Nuggets have right. game seven at home over the Celtics or something like but that.
2: But that's how that's how desperate we are to come up with a solution. I mean, the only other thing I could think of that would create some sort of excitement if the players bought into this was a, like a Ryder Cup situation of international versus Team USA. Uh, and and I don't even know how we would have an equal amount of like international all stars. Well, yeah, I think we would fill it up because there's a ton of international all stars that play at that level now. But you know, to have a Team USA versus international t- all international team, and it was like Ryder Cup stakes. But how do you create that type of tradition so fast where the players would care right off the bat? Is difficult.
1: My other idea is not so my idea. It's an idea that's been floated. If the players don't care about the game the quality of the game and the league doesn't care about the quality of the game because they can make lip service to caring about the quality of the game, but they don't because again, you don't mic up a player during a game. If you, if you think the player is going to play hard, then just let's just not have the game. Let's have all stars because you have to have all stars guys have in their shoe contracts, bonuses for making all star. But, but let's just not have the game. Let's if the most memorable part of yesterday of Sunday's game was the 90 seconds when Tatum and Jalen Brown went one-on-one against each other. Let's do the thing that people have been clamoring for for a long time and just have a one-on-one tournament over three days or whatever it is. Have have all the all-stars get bracketed up and it's a one-on-one tournament. People would at least watch that. Guys would try during that. Or three on someone pitched to me three on three randomly break them up into teams of three on three have have special entries like a G League three on three team a host city yeah you know, like Utah Jazz three on three team some just if we're if the game sucks let's just not ha, let's think of alternatives where we don't have the game and we have other stuff going on or maybe we have the in season tournament culminates. At all star, this theoretical in season, mid season David Stern Cup culminates at all star. If the if the game stinks, we don't have to have the game. Just, I uh, just a thought.
2: That's a tough one to swallow. That's a tough. I mean, you're talking to somebody who grew up. I, I loved watching the all star game, and I loved watching the East versus the West. And but that was also a different era where players just didn't move. It's but, over, man. But you it's also over. knew, like in that fourth quarter, in that last six to eight minutes, Michael was coming to play. You know, Michael wanted to win and everybody else was going to try to beat him. And that's when the guys started caring. And it was awesome to watch those moments. You know, I was in Atlanta when Michael, I think, sent the game to overtime. If you remember that all-star game. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was just, like, incredible to watch. And you would always see, like, the older generation kind of start to hand the baton to the younger generation where, you know, Iverson would start to come up and Kobe and things like that. So, I mean, I, my favorite all-star of all time was the one at Madison Square Garden. I was there with a young Kobe, you know, waving off Karl Malone and taking on Michael Jordan. I guess I still hold on to that, man, because I still, I still want that to come back one day. I, I just don't know how to get these players to care because they're looking to get on the first plane out to Cabo.
1: And again, I don't, I don't blame them. I'm not going to sit here and tisk tisk the players for not caring. Me too. Why would they care? It, it because even if there is this sort of very slow moving slippery slope of like if you keep sending fans the message in the regular season and in the All Star game that these games are not important, eventually in whatever amount of years ratings will drop gradually. It's not going to make a difference to the player. These players that don't don't it, it doesn't you. I couldn't see that long term end game. I would be like I just don't want to get injured. But it was. It was like the people who played defense for – you would say these occasional bursts of like defense or offensive rebounding. And you could see the the players as they're doing it be like, oh, oh, I'm not supposed to be – this is real basketball. I'm not i oh, sorry. I wasn't supposed to do that. Sorry I broke the code. Wasn't supposed to – like, sorry for that. We couldn't even get three minutes of real basketball. It was awful. And I don't know the, the solution to it. Really, maybe there is no solution. Maybe you just have this game, and two out of every three years, it's like this. And one out of every three years, it, it turns good for whatever reason. Because that game, people need to go back and watch the last five minutes of the 2020 game. That yeah, was that, that was, was, was like, Giannis was trying to get Chris Paul matched up on him. Chris Paul was not having any of it. They were like trying to rescue Chris Paul out of that switch. And people were picking on Harden on the other end. It was awesome. Um, This was not awesome. Okay, let's go through the news. We have three quick news items to get to. Number one before the big news item. Lonzo Ball is out for the season. Um I think um you you watched him up close in Los Angeles. Yeah. We, we can all agree that before we get to any discussion of the Bulls, or at least I can agree. I love watching Lonzo Ball play. He He's is. unselfish, he plays fast, he shoots tons of threes, he plays defense. He thinks the game one step ahead yep. of everyone on the court. He's just delightful to watch and above and beyond anything else. I just hope we get to see that guy again. Like, this is really, really sad what's happened. Obviously, it's a disaster for the Bulls, who are 26 and 33, and I think 11th in the East. And it's just, you know, I know that Lonzo fits everything this group needs, right? They need defense. They need high-volume three-point shooting. They don't take any threes, barely any threes relative to the league. They need a connector, a point guard. They're, they're trying to play Desunu, a point guard. It's not working. He's everything they need. I also don't think he's the difference between a 26-33 and 33 team. A team that is like really trying to hold off the plucky Orlando Magic who own their freaking draft pick and have Wendell Carter Jr. and have Franz Wagner from the same trade with Chicago. Barely holding them up. Lonzo's not the difference between that team and like a 50-win team. Lonzo is not like a 30 win above average replacement player player and 50 wins is what you should be shooting for when you trade what they traded to build this team of Vucevic, DeRozan, and Levine. And by the way, for the second straight year, they are being outscored barely, albeit with those big three on the floor. And I'm sorry to say, like I know the supporting cast around them has been imperfect and injured from Lonzo to Caruso to the rotating you know to Patrick Williams having one good game and one invisible game and all this stuff like if you're a big three if you're gonna sit here and be like look have three all-stars on our team three guys who are true legit blue chip all-stars then you should at least like win the minutes when those three guys are all playing together and they can't even do that and now Lon- the Lonzo thing and Lowry Markkinen's an all-star all of a sudden and I think about the Jimmy Butler trade like once every three days. I sit around and think about, like, man, what is the road not taken for the Bulls? Like if they had just kept Jimmy Butler, it's just a mess. And uh, Lonzo, I think we all knew it was unlikely he was going to come back. And it just stinks. It just really stinks. I love watching him play.
2: Zach, I, I moved to New York, to Los Angeles to cover Lonzo when he first got became a Laker. And I n- was hoping this was not going to be the case, but I was there – And reported like the first time he started having trouble with that left knee. Um, I tracked him down, I think at a big baller brand, like uh, I think it was like some sort of youth AU thing. And I hadn't seen him and he had taken the last, he he was out the last eight games of his, I think second season, or it might've been his rookie season. Magic comes out and says, this is the biggest summer of your life. You have to get stronger. You have to work on your shot, all these things. And Lonzo wasn't working out. And so I went to go get him and he told me that he had gotten a PRP injection into his left knee and took a whole month off and had not played for pretty much like two months, I think. And then was starting to get back on the court. And I remember thinking, God, he's 20 years old. He's already getting like a PRP injection. This is not good, you know? And then that's from that point on, it's the same left knee. That's giving him trouble. And it's really a shame because he is a delight to watch, man. If you're a basketball fan, I'm not saying it's like watching Jokic, but when you watch Lonzo Ball, he really does think the game one to two steps ahead and his passes up the floor, man. It's like I it's like watching Magic Johnson sometimes or Jason Kidd think out the game. Lonzo kind of has that intuition about him of looking ahead one step ahead. And so it's kind of sad to see cuz I think his game was progressing. He started to develop a three-point shot. You know, and I think like, you know, the Bulls were exciting to watch. It feels like the magic's worn off a little bit on the Bulls. Like last year was so fun to watch DeMar DeRozan and that crew. And now, for whatever reason, it's not working.
1: Yeah. I never really liked what the Bulls did building this team. I, d- I didn't hate it, I got why they did it. But I, at the time, I said, I don't see them ever winning more than one playoff series in any season while they have this core together and they may not ever even win one. But I do think they were a good team with Lonzo. Like I do I do think they could have been a solid 48 win kind of team. And that team just is gone and now they have big decisions this summer. News item number two, Jacques Vaughn getting an extension with the Nets. I don't really have any hot takes on that except I think he deserved it. They're 32 and 19 since they hired him. They were they were horrible with Steve Nash, for whatever reason, this year, they changed coaches. All of a sudden the team cared about defense and um, they were winning every game. And then of course the team no longer exists and a new team exists because the nets just net around. And this is what happens to the nets. A sinkhole opens underneath the Barclays center and a, a bunch of superstars disappear like Michael Jordan and space jam. And, uh,
2: but I think, John. Hey, is that the thing, st- Zach, the nets are going to net around. Like the Clippers are going to clip. The Nets are going yeah, to be Yeah, they're the around. same
1: franchise. I've I've made this com I've made this comparison over and over again. They're the the second city. They're the yeah. second city team in their city, and nothing good ever happens to them. And just when you think something good is happening to them, something bad happens to them. It's the same. It's the same thing. It's eerie how similar it is. Except of course, the Nets have made the finals at least in I, in previous I covered incarnations. That, I
2: cover and- cover that team. And even when they were going to two straight finals and had the best product. Best basketball product, hands down, in New York, in the New York area, because they were in New Jersey. uh, New York didn't care. And they would go into Madison Square Garden and own MSG. I mean, Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, Richard Jefferson would go in there and put on a show that was better than anything on Broadway. I mean, no-look passes, alley-oops. They were just putting a product on the floor that was amazing. And yet still, nobody cared because they were in New Jersey. And everybody thought, oh, when they moved to Brooklyn, my no. It it doesn't change. I mean, you know, even when I still go to Brooklyn games now, it still always kind of felt like, you know, uh, fans were there, like as if it was a game in like London. It was kind of cool to be there in the stands to watch an NBA game, but they didn't really have their own fan base, you know? So it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I, I do think though, Zach, I keep wondering, Steve Nash would love to coach this Nets team that's there right now. <laughs>
1: I mean, look <laughs> – It was a rough go for Steve Nash. Um, Jacques Vaughn, look, this franchise, more than anyone, just needs stability. He's done well as the coach there whenever he's been the coach now and in the bubble. Um, So let's have some stability. Let's just say this guy's our coach. We've been through enough turmoil, some self-inflicted, some not. Let's just have some stability. Last one, um, the Heat are going to sign Kevin Love and – or have signed Kevin Love and Cody Zeller. Um, Real quickly, I I think it was awesome. What the Cavaliers did uh, announcing, yes, we've agreed to a buyout with Kevin Love. Yes, it, they, didn't, they didn't say this. Yes, our bet that extending him years ago for all this money would would make him a more tradable player went bust. They didn't say that part. Um, but we love Kevin Love. He, we're going to retire his jersey the minute that we can. I thought that was great. Kevin. I know Kevin legitimately loves Cleveland, loves his time there, and it's just time to move on. I think he can help Miami. I, I'm curious to see whether he walks into the starting job or they keep Caleb Martin as the starting four. Um, their their core lineups with Caleb Martin have, have been very, very good. He's a much better defensive player than Kevin Love. Um, obviously, we know Kevin Love offers shooting. The Heat needs shooting badly, um, but he can't switch. So they'd have to play differently with him. Maybe they can protect him in, in his own defense. Maybe they do what they did when they had Myers Leonard, who's back in the league with Milwaukee now, and have Kevin, if Kevin loves playing with Bam, you can have Kevin Love guard centers who are slower and Bam can guard fours and you can finagle it that way. You can play some zone. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. But lineups with Love and Tyler Hero... It's a lot of places for postseason offenses to really pick at, and that's when I would expect Spo to use zone to protect those guys. Um, maybe he play, ends up playing some backup five. Obviously, Cody Zeller is going to play some backup five. That's that's Orlando Robinson's been good, but the Heat needed a veteran presence there. Um, we'll see. I, I'm I'm a little skeptical that Kevin's got enough juice to really tilt the equation there, but I think he'll help. He, he can obviously provide some he can also i think provide some low post scoring in a a pinch for them which is good the other thing is when you're talking about building lineups with kevin love and the issues that pairing him and another weak defensive player raise it's like victor Oladipo hasn't played in a while and he could be one of the answers to that question that's a big one but enough enough heat we'll see how it works the headliner the headliner of the weekend the clippers (laughs) Having acquired Eric Gordon, Mason Plumlee, and Bones Highland and uh, playing their best basketball of the season after much public lobbying by essentially all their players, dipped their toe into the Russell Westbrook pool and have agreed to terms or agreed to sign Russell Westbrook once you know, he's bought out clears waivers, cetera. Ohm, um, you have a piece about it up today. You quote Lawrence Frank in the piece describing the kind of point guard the Clippers might want. This was uh, a quote that he had after the trade deadline and before acquiring Russell Westbrook. Invariably, what's important is whether they're a point guard or not, we need someone that won't be played off the floor defensively, someone who can share the ball responsibilities, but not yet be so ball dominant. You know the ball is going to be in Kawhi and PG's hands about 60% of the time, so it's a delicate balance. And then they signed Russell Westbrook. I am frankly um, in shock that they did this. I don't think it will work. Um, I understand the theoretical argument for it, which is we play slow. We don't get to the rim. Well, Russ plays fast and he gets to the rim. And he'll spray the ball out to our shooters. We're a great shooting team that probably hasn't generated enough threes this year. He has an edge. He <laughs> plays with edge. We don't play with a lot of edge. Probably because our guys don't play all that many games. We don't play with an edge. He'll bring an edge. He's mean. He makes faces. Makes mean faces. He rocks the baby every <laughs> single time he posts somebody up. He gives us an edge. <sighs> I, there is an irony, I think, to the team that has most devalued the regular season. Over the last four years, just so we don't care about the regulars. Just wake us up in the playoffs with 25 games to go plopping this grenade. One of the more unique pieces in the NBA with 25 games left is like we got to learn how to play with this new thing, which, again, I get the theoretical argument for it. The real the other argument is, well, if we go five out, right, like we built this team before acquiring Mason Plumley to play at least some minutes of every game with five shooters. That's really where Russ thrives because if if there's one other non-shooter on the floor, it just gets very, very hard to have the ball in anybody else's hands because no one is going to guard Russ off the ball, and then you throw a Zubats or a Plumley. it's just the spacing is is going to be there, and and so if they're going to play five out, I, I, that that could work. That I could see working. I just don't get why you would acquire Mason Plumley. To back up a Zubots, if that's still going to be a huge part of your team. But maybe it's not like Mason Bumble is that good. So maybe, maybe that's the reason why. I just think um the chaos factor of integrating him, the complete lack of shooting from anywhere. Forget the perimeter shooting. He shoots 50% of the rim now. And you can sit here and give me the numbers, the raw numbers. Like look at his assists. Look at the whatever he j- the rebounds. It's like the assists and the rim attacks. First of all, the Clippers are not that bad at getting to the rim. They're like 22nd in percentage of shots that come at the rim. They're not like horrible at getting to the rim. They're plus 12 per 100 possessions with Kawhi and Paul George on the floor. That's going fine. And all of those assists and rim shots come at the expense of the overall bad spacing, which just infects every possession, turnovers, four per 36 minutes, and all those misses at the rim are fast breaks for the other team, which people just don't put those puzzle pieces together. I just hate the fit. I, I don't hate the fit because if, it go, if they go five out, it can work. I don't like the fit. I don't understand why they did this. I don't think they really even needed to do it. Can you please explain this to me? Because I'm just like flabbergasted that they've taken this step. Is this just uh, –
2: expl- I, I, I'm, I'm, explain. Zach. You know how the NBA works and how stars always feel and head coaches as well. When there's talent out there, they always feel like they can add talent to this team and make it work. No matter how bad it went in the last place, it'll stop before that or anything like that. They will always look to add talent. They always think about the player's whole career and not like, what have you done for me lately? They're not in that Janet Jackson mode. These guys look at Russell Westbrook as the former MVP candidate who averages triple doubles, who can do this and that, bring the intensity, the juice. I will say this, his personality will probably can help and hurt. I I do think there are times when they absolutely need this like aggression and angry type of play because you just don't get any emotion from Kawhi and really Paul George and and that trickles down to the Russell team. But I do also wonder, look, all the things the Clippers complained about with John Wall. He sometimes takes poor shot selection in these spot up threes. They don't mind when he was doing catch-and-shoot threes or maybe in, in mid-range shots. But the, it was the it was the pull-up threes that drove them crazy. The bad turnovers because John was playing so aggressive and trying to make something happen. And also defensively, John Wall getting exposed defensively, having only played 40 games in three years. And then all of a sudden, you know, guys picking on him, not being able to move. Well, Russell Westbrook does all three of those things at a much magnified level. Sometimes even worse it's going to drive them crazy. Uh, but from what I was told, look, Lawrence Frank, when he gave us that quote, it was almost like he didn't say Russell Westbrook's name, but he almost was telling us like we're not going to go after Russell Westbrook. But I, I, think- I would,
1: if this fails, and I would bet on it failing, and and almost in its failure you would get the blueprint for why it's not that bad. Like the the Lakers needed Russ. They were going to play him regardless. The Clippers don't need him. If it doesn't work, they just don't have to play him. They just acquired two guards at the trade deadline, including a guy in Eric Gordon, who they viewed as like a hand in glove fit for how they want to play. So if it fails, I think almost the best argument for it is if it fails, you just wash your hands of it. No harm, no foul. And he just gets angry on the bench or whatever. But if it fails, I will be very interested to see the stories that come out at ESPN, at the Athletic, and everywhere. A, a behind the scenes, the Clippers' decision to sign mm-hmm. Russell Lester, but because fingers will be pointed yes. and knives yeah. will be out.
2: Look, look, Zach, I think they they after the trade deadline they met with Kawhi, they met with Paul. They met with Ty and the coaching staff, and they said, what do we need going into the playoffs? And those guys said, we can use another veteran point guard. We need a guy who does some of the things John Wall did, get to the rim, push the tempo, another guy who can handle the ball and get us in the right spots. And so obviously Paul wants Russ because Paul played with Russ, had his best season with Russ, was an MVP candidate. I think Kawhi looks like, look, let's add more talent. Why not? But you're right, Zach. You can see a a situation here where if the Clippers are bounced in the first or second round, and it's in a bad, bad fashion or bad manner, there are going to be guys in that, you know, you can see guys maybe trying to save their jobs. You know what I mean? And so somebody can say, look, we, you know, we got you, Russ. We got you, Russ, and it didn't work out. This is what you guys wanted. You know, they could use that. I, I It could end very badly. And I think what the Clippers are saying is, Russell knows coming in and the Clippers know they're all on the same page that he's not coming in to be the third star. It's not like with the Lakers who, you know, I think also the Clippers probably feel like the Lakers misused him and didn't know, didn't have the right pieces around him. And a lot of Clipper players felt like Russ was made to be the scapegoat. They feel that this is a better fit for him. They have more shooters. They have guys that can run with him. But I still see a situation where Ty ends up finishing games with Eric Gordon on the floor. With with Paul George and it's a small sample size and Kawhi Leonard, but I think he likes that so far. We've seen kind of Eric Gordon kind of finish that because he can defend, he can shoot, and spread the floor for those guys, and he can do a little point.
1: Yeah, I already was on record after the trade deadline on this podcast and elsewhere. I I wouldn't have touched him with ten foot pole if I were the Clippers. I just would I would be a total stay away mode. They obviously disagreed, and that creates some great theater, by the way, because the consensus is that this is a bad move, and there's a sort of prove it, prove everyone wrong quality to this for Russ, for Ty Lu, for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, for whoever whoever back this. It's like okay, let's let's see if it works, and if it works, they absolutely get to crow in my face and everyone else's face who said this was a dumb move for them. It comes at an for interesting
2: them. time, Zach. They've won 10 of 14 games. Terrence, man, they're playing been, well. Terrence, Mann, as a starting point guard, the last 21 games starting to feel more and more comfortable. Yes. There are times when he still needs to recognize like, Hey, this is an opportunity for me to attack my guy instead of moving the ball and spreading it. Around. And I think he's starting to feel that, but Tyler views him as a small forward, not really a, a point guard. And if you see Terrence, man, doesn't finish a lot of games. Um, I, 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 you know, how, how do you feel about this, Zach, from a basketball standpoint? If Russell Westbrook is setting screens for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, he's the role guy. How do you feel about that? Stop,
1: stop, stop. How do I feel about that? I feel the same way I felt for 10 years when everyone's like, if Russ just set screens and played, it was Draymond Green. And to Russ's credit in the last two seasons, he has set career highs for total ball screens set. Do you want to hear what those career highs are? (laughs) in 2021-22 Russell Westbrook set 56 ball screens 56 that was a career high 56 my math isn't awesome but that's less than one a game throw it in the garbage in this current season Russ has broken that career high and set 72 ball screens over one per game he doesn't want to do it There is no evidence that he will ever do it in a meaningful volume. But yes, the way to use Russell Westbrook is with four shooters around him, the Clippers can provide that. As a screener for apex wing ball handlers who can turn the corner, hit him on the short roll, punish switches, the Clippers have that. So sure, if he's willing to do those things and minimize all the other damaging stuff, the turnovers, the bad shots, Yeah, there's a world where he can play with those guys. If he's not willing to do those things, and Kawhi and PG have the ball 60% of the time, like Lawrence Frank said, and one of their centers is on the floor, it's not going to work. There's no evidence to suggest it will work. And so I don't think it's going to work. But look... I, I got, I got nothing. I'm just, I'm, I really did not. I said, I don't think the Clippers will do it. I said on TV, I, I look like I was wrong. I was clearly wrong. I'm shocked. I'm still shocked. I I can't believe they did it.
2: Power of the players, power of the players, Zach, you know, and I think also Ty Lue, you know, I think he thinks he can fit this guy into his system and make it work. And so the bottom line is, I think you always want as much talent as possible going into the playoffs. And they have 21 games and a ton of practice time, Zach, to see if it works. Yes, yeah,
1: the team that doesn't care about the regular season, doesn't care about well, practice, has is, 21 games to integrate Russell Westbrook, and by the thing, way, three other guys they just traded for.
2: That is one thing that Russ brings. That they that is also another Clipper weakness: availability. Caring Russ is always available. Caring
1: about the games.
2: <laughs> Russ is Look, always available.
1: None of this listen, is too- in,
2: those, in those small lineups. They do they do have problems rebounding. Maybe Russ also helps with that
1: too. That I I have said already. If you play him in their five-out lineups, it can work.
2: Yeah,
1: it can work in very limited minutes. And if everyone plays the right way, and the world doesn't tilt off its axis, it can work. And none of this is. Do do not get me started on oh, everyone's denigrating Russ to slander Russ. I was a top seventy-five NBA voter. I was one of the voters. I had Russ in my top seventy-five. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. None of this is about what he has accomplished. The last two seasons, he has not been nearly that player. And that's the guy the Clippers are getting. And I just don't like it. And I and well, the proof will be in the proverbial pudding of the last 20 whatever games that the Clippers have. And then if they make the playoffs, assuming they do the playoffs and ohm, you will be there to chronicle it all. Please enjoy Hawaii. Um, I'm jealous. I don't I hate you. Um one of the <laughs> top five reasons for living in Southern California is that Hawaii is a relatively close flight compared to I might as well live on Mars. I can't get there.
2: You can so, go to the Caribbean. You can show flight that. from Aruba.
1: Uh and we can go to Disney World. And boy, I I think I'm gonna have to do the Disney podcast. And now we gotta switch over to our buddy Kendrick Perkins. Thank you, um. See ya And now, boy, am I excited. You see this book right here, YouTube viewers? The Education of Kendrick Perkins. Look at all these notes. I read the whole damn thing. And I will say this for my friend and colleague, Kendrick Perkins, who, you know, Perk, you, you I don't think it's a secret that you are sometimes a polarizing presence and you've poked fun at it in your commercial where you're throwing the darts at the hot takes. Every time somebody asks me about you, this is true. I say, you guys don't, you guys don't see it. Like I'm, I'm with Perk before the show. And he's like, we're going to talk about the Sixers. Let me call up Doc Rivers. And he gets Doc Rivers on the phone. And he like gets he, intel from Doc Rivers. Like Perk is putting in the work in ways people don't understand. And I didn't know that a goddamn book was being written this entire time. Uh, the Education of Kendrick Perkins. I read it. And I will just open the floor to you by saying this. If people think they are getting a standard athlete memoir they are in for a hard left turn into some subjects that they probably uh didn't expect to get into there is a, a book here about politics about racial history about historiography about how the the about historians coverage of the African-American struggle for freedom and equality has, has, has changed over the years. I did not expect to go back to my history roots to that level. Um, just, I guess, start there. I mean, you, you talk about your upbringing in Texas, your parents, and a big part of the book perk is about rage. And that's a word you use often in the book rage. And you talk about Bigger Thomas, the character from Native Son, a book a lot of us read when we were kids and about your own rage as as a black man in America. Um, when did you decide you wanted the book to have to be like half about that and half about basketball?
0: What was that? First of all, hey, listen, I'm telling you, I, I look, I like you a lot when we working together on television, but I love you on this podcast, all right? You need to bring me more, because if you go give me an intro like that, David, I want to come on all the time. That's the first thing. Second thing, I appreciate you reading the book, Zach, and I appreciate you having me on, because you know you my good friend, and we go back and forth on times, but we've been agreeing a lot lately. But it, it came from you know the co-author self, right? and over the year and a half that we've been working on this book together uh multiple zoom calls because he lived in europe so we're going two times a week for two and a half hours each time um seph said he he brought the idea to me that he wanted it to be different so i was saying to him like you know how could we make this different when we're doing a memoir and we're going to talk about my life like it's nothing I could go on here and lie about or say anything that's not facts and, and speak not the truth about what happened in my journey for his life. And he was like, well, let's do it where we could talk about your life, but let's also educate people and talk about and dive into the roots of, of situations, uh, you know, and doing that. And I said, okay, cool. So he just gave me an example, right? Like when we first started, he went into where I'm from, from Beaumont, Texas, and he dove into the Pear Orchard. And I'm going to sit up here and tell you right now, Zach, when I read the book, I actually learned more about the Pear Orchard reading that book than what I ever knew. That's how deep self went into the Explain
1: roots. what the Pear Orchard is to people who haven't read the okay, book Okay, I'm
0: sorry. So, Pear Orchard is the community that I grew up in in Beaumont, Texas, right? It's about six streets, you know, that's... that's uh, basically in between two projects. And it's an area where, you know, everybody knows everybody, you know, it's really a community of, of, of low income houses. Uh, and there's a lot of old people that stayed there, you know, and the old people that passed away, their kids stay there. And if they passed away or moved on, their kid, kids stay there still to this day. So that's what the Palachi is. And it goes back all the way to like, you know, the 1920s and, and things to that nature when my grandmother and my grandfather first decided to go there in 1935. And so he wanted to dive into the roots of things. And I kind of was like, ah, self, I don't know. He's like, man, trust me, man. And he was just like doing his research on every single thing. And as the that piece got When I read that first part of it and how he dove into it right there, the trust was there. I was like, okay, cool. We're going to continue to do it this way because this is awesome and a great idea that you came up with. You
1: talk a lot in there about, again, about anger and about the feeling that you and other players have of um, being – African-American players in a, in a league where the owners are white, the commissioner's white, the media is white. And you have in there, um, you talk about the malice in the palace, the reaction to the malice in the palace. And I'm just going to read the, the quote and and then the dress code and everything that came from that. You talk about David Stern. You said Stern's reaction to the brawl might've been praised in the media and applauded in corporate boardrooms but it was despised by us players. We couldn't stand David Stern after that. And that's a persistent theme in the book of the sense of labor being controlled by, by white bosses. And I I just wonder if you could talk a little bit uh, about that a little bit more. Is that, so that was a feeling like among players, like that was the reaction to to David Stern and the mouse in the palace.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, what's crazy Zach is, That's why you see so many players now, uh, they love Adam Silver. He's the complete opposite. That's why you see, like, when we was going through that time in the bubble, real quick, when we was going through that time in the bubble with the death of George Floyd and the stoppage in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks not taking the court. Like, it wasn't no action taking place by the NBA for his fines or anything to that nature. You saw support right? You saw support, and it starts with the top. Yes, you got to go run it by multiple people, but it came from the very person himself and Adam Silver. And once Adam Silver was on on board, then all of a sudden these star players start saying that, hey, he has our back. Now we can hold the ownership group accountable. So when I talk about that in that segment, it just stems from I was part of that when we had to do a dress code, right? When the dress code taking place that you had to wear a suit and you had to come, you know, basically come to the arena formal. It was like, wow, like, like we're walking in and people are only going to see us for two minutes. Why can't we come in and and be comfortable in our own skin? Like, why do we have to wear a dress code? And we was actually getting fined if we didn't ha- if we wasn't in dress code, which was ridiculous. And if you could hear some of the conversations behind the scenes with all the players, you know, eventually, like they were tired of it because it's like, okay, why the way we dress just because you don't approve, it doesn't make it right. Like it doesn't make it right. And so I just remember those conversations that were being had. And I remember, you know, those players like Jermaine O'Neal and, and a great brother of mine and Steven Jackson and, you know, uh, Ron The the way that they felt, after the malice at the palace because they felt like nobody had their back and they felt like all they was doing was protecting themselves. Yes, the brawl started on the floor, but when it escalated outside the lines, they felt like they were left, you know, basically hung dry to be honest with you. And these were the conversations that was being held inside the locker room and you would hear them in uh, in in the Players Association meeting, like guys were raging raging like raging and and like it was just it was crazy to hear and I was just remember that part when that's when I had to dive into it for as you know in my book and talk about it
1: yeah you talk about you talk about Trump but you don't name Trump in the book you just <laughs> he's he's referred to as as just the president the former president yeah you you talk about January 6th and the difficulty of talking to your kids about what was going on at the Capitol on January sixth, right. um, these are these are heavy, heavy subjects. And you talk about your own rage, and I didn't know this about you. You talk about late in your career, you went to Lawrence, Kansas, and and enrolled in in an anger management. Um, what sounded like an anger management pro- program. And you talked about there were some incidents with teammates and off the court stuff. And, and I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that. Cause particularly the, the basketball part of it, like how did that manifest itself? I think you were still with the thunder then maybe the Pelicans. Yeah. Uh, how did that rage manifest itself in the locker room on the court? And th- what made you think like, all right, I gotta, I gotta do something about well,
0: this. Well, it kind of, it happened because I put myself in that position, Like, and, I had gotten to a fight outside the nightclub, and I thought the incident was over. And I, we went to training camp and we went to Turkey. And when I got back, when we was on our way back, uh, the head security guy named Flash, he came up to me and he was like, hey, stay on the plane. We got to work something out. You got a warrant out for your arrest. And I was like, a warrant? Like, like what's going on? He's like, well, somebody went and pressed charges on you about an incident that happened outside a nightclub. We gotta figure it out. We need to get you to Texas. We go stop them from arresting you right now. But you need to get up. We go. No, I had to pay a fine to post bail or something to that nature. So they're like, "Look, next day we're putting you on a private jet. You need to fly down to Houston, hire your lawyer, and get this behind you, right?" So I I I take all the steps and do that, and I go through the year, and I'm still getting into you know heated confrontations and things to that nature. And I'm still raging, I don't know why, but like, you know, the technical files is one thing, but like, I catch myself, you know, during that time, I'm about to get in a fight with Zach Randolph and, you know, I'm 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 getting ejected out of games and things to that nature. And it was Donnie Strack and Sam Preston, right? Because it wasn't over. They never forgot about the incident. It was just too late to act on it at that moment. And so they came to me and they was like, hey, listen, you got two options, right? We still got to penalize you for your actions that happened last offseason. So either we're going to suspend you without pay. And they was talking like 25-plus games. Or they have this place down in Kansas that you could go to, and it's, 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 it's going to help you, and you need to show that you're committed by going. And I'm like, man, like, man, I ain't – nothing wrong with me you know what I'm saying They're like not perk but it wasn't a harsh conversation so I go down to Kansas uh I, I agreed to go down I go down I'm not happy on the four hour ride down to Kansas right I'm'm I'm, I'm pissed I'm living and I get there and the classes were Monday through Friday eight in the morning to five in the evening right so I get to the classes and I'm in this in these classrooms, in these in this space well, it's a luxury setup, right? They treating you to food and all this. But I'm in there with like, you know, one of the top spinal surgeons and anesthesiologists and, you know, top doctors around the, 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 the nation that had problems and, and had like that abused their power in the in, in the uh workspace. And so I'm in there and I'm the only athlete in there. And the whole time I'm like, all right, I'm here. So I'm gonna make the best of it. And I just started learning. Right. I started learning from each person's situation. And, you know, uh, we had to do these different assignments and we had to, you know, read and, and hear, you know, the counselors out about putting yourself in, in certain positions and not, you know, and thinking things through before you do certain things or going certain places. And it helped me, man. Like it was it was it really did. It helped me start start to evaluate situations more have more self-control over myself, where it was like, you know what? I don't need to go out or I don't need to go to this place. Or I started to think about things when people invite me places and say, well, what's really going on over here? Like what's really happening? You know what I'm saying? And it made me a better man. And I felt like five years ago, Zach, you could have never, t- like no one could ever beat this out of me to tell this story. Like it was, you know, almost embarrassing, right? But I was like, you know what? Like, it's okay to, to, to share it because we're in a space now where you're going through mental health, right? Like, so many people have mental health issues, and in the African American community, like growing up, if you say that you're going to get help or get counseling or you're going through something, you get laughed at. Like, you become the butt of the jokes. So, I wanted to let it be known to the world that it's okay. Like, it's okay, especially to do these young kids and these these young people in these households in the African-American community that are going through something that you never know. They just need to go talk to somebody or go get help. You could save somebody's life. So, like, you see people taking their lives on a day to day basis because they can't have the adversity or they're afraid to go get help because they're scared of what other people are going to say.
1: It's really fascinating to read it because again, the word rage comes up a lot in the book and you talk about the source, what you think some of the sources are for the rage you felt and the sensitivity you felt of <laughs> racist, either either explicitly or implicitly white people using the stereotype of the angry black man to further cement their power status and demean black people and the sensitivity you felt to I I I can't feed into that but I have to channel my rage into productive ways it's it's really it's really interesting and that journey in the book starts with you driving from Beaumont to Boston as an 18-year-old <laughs> kid who I think you said had never done laundry before in the book had never has <laughs> never never lived anywhere outside of Beaumont and all of a sudden you're living in a townhouse in Boston and now we get to talk about some fun Celtic stories, if you want. Um, you want to say, I can tell you want to say something. What do you want to say?
0: Yeah. yeah. So, Zach, you know how sometimes I, I, hit, I hit you with those country sayings on television. You say, I, I don't understand a word Perk just said, or, well, what he just said just now. But I am going to say this, and then you go ahead to dive into your topic. Well, you know, here's another country thing about me that happened. I didn't know a damn thing about transporting cars like i didn't know i could call services and get my truck like shipped to boston and i could catch a flight and actually go and they'll be there you know a week or a couple of days later so my country self got in the car with one of my good friends george davis and we drove 30 hours 30 hours with bags packed the truck filled because that's the only way i thought i could get my car to Boston, right? And so we didn't have like Google Maps. We had a real road map. Like, that's what I we it. was doing. So he would drive, we would alternate. He would drive from, you know, so the gas meter went from full to empty and then we would switch over and then, during that time we would nap. But that's that's the countryness, right? I didn't even know. Like that's just me from Boba, Texas. I didn't know I could, put my, my truck on a, on the 18-wheeler or whatever you want to call it on the flatbed and ship it across country near to be there, you know, a couple of days after I would arrive.
1: You talk a lot about Paul Pierce and the mentorship role Paul Pierce played for you in serious ways, inviting you and your friends who were visiting. Like, yeah, you're all welcome at my house. You had a name for his house. You want to say what the name was for Paul Pierce's
0: house? Yeah, it, it was Club Shiznit. Club Shiznit. Yeah, Club Shiznit. Yes I say But
1: please it. please tell <laughs> please tell the story about how you earned I think it was $15,000 from Paul Pierce in either your rookie season or earlier in your Celtics career.
0: Yeah, it was 1500. So 1500, oh that's yeah, less was,
1: that's less dramatic. It's still yeah, a lot, yeah, but it's like yeah, 15,000 is better.
0: But it was $1500, so I remember like Paul Paul was a guy like he wanted to see like who had the the killer instinct and the mindset, right? So it was it was Marcus Banks and Brandon Hunter and myself that was the three rookies. Well, like Brandon Hunter and Marcus Banks was kind of like those guys that went to college three, four years and was kind of stubborn, grown man. Like they was kind of like rebellious in a way for us being rookies and rookie duty. So one day after practice, Paul was like, I need to see who wanna be here. I need to see who want to be here. Which one of y'all rookies really want to be here? Like it was a, I didn't realize it was a test at the time. I'm just thinking about what he's about to say. So he's like, you know what? I got $1,500 right now. It's like 12 inches of snow outside. Who, who want to be here? I got 1,500 cash. I want to see who, in, who, who gonna go outside in the snow and do, give me a hundred ups with nothing but they tights on. So they didn't budge, I'm like, I'm still on my rookie deal. <laughs> I ain't really getting no player time. So I'm gonna go out there and knock it out. So I go out there and my tights in the snow, he come out there, he count, I knock out a hundred pushups. I actually did like, I think it was like, I probably broke it up in four sets of 25. So I do the hundred pushups, I come back, he gave, me the, he gave me the money. He like, that's what I'm talking about. This is my little warrior right here. He want to be here. He bought that life. He bought that action. And ever since then, he took me under his wing. Ever since then, I was his road dog.
1: Now, many stories have been told about the 2008 Celtics, <laughs> the gambling on the plane, yeah, the wildness. Well-documented. Um, you talk about the 2006 seven Celtics, which were the uh, losingest team of your career, the Kevin Durant tanking team, uh, right. Greg Oden, Kevin Durant <laughs> draft. Um, and here's um, this is my first. I'm going to offer a criticism now, Perk. Okay, because I'm not just going to I'm not just going to tout this book. I got to be a literary critic here too. I know. Wrong with it. Here's your story about the 2006 seven Celtics. Um, we ended the year with the second worst record in the NBA. But, man, did we have some fun? We were kicking it in the clubs, making it rain. Every fruit that the labor of the NBA get gets you, we got it. There was one epic night in Memphis when a bunch of us hit up a club and didn't leave until we'd collectively dropped around seventy five thousand dollars. You'll have to imagine the rest of that story. Perk, I have your book. You wrote a book. I don't want to have to imagine the story. I want you to write the damn story. What happened? You dropped 75 grand. I need more details than that. Why write a book if
0: you're not going to put that in? Well, we we dropped $75,000, right? We made it rain to the point we made it rain so much that we couldn't pay our drivers to get us back to the hotel. Like we had maxed out everything. So we took the cash that we had, we we took cash advances, we maxed out our credit cards and everything. I mean, we flooded the whole club. And at the end of the night, we all was so broke at the moment that we didn't even have a ride to get back to our hotel room. That's It was that bad. Like we ran out of our cash, we took every card that we had. We went, and got cash advance, cash advance. till so we maxed that out, and we didn't have a ride to get back. Zach. we didn't have a, a ride to get back to the hotel.
1: You're you're still holding back on details, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let no, you. No, I'm time. not
0: holding back on details. That was that was it. That was it. Like we 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 literally woke up the next morning, and guys were pissed. And you know what? That was actually our last night of actually making it rain. That was our last night of making it rain. That was a learning moment because once we start realizing <laughs> how much money we blew in an actual club, right in a gentleman's club, a strip club, that was the moment right there that we stopped making it rain. Everybody went tight.
1: Then, the, then KG and Ray come and the team changes. And you talk a lot about in the books – How that first season together when you end up winning the title, the practices and particularly the scrimmages between the first unit, which you were on with Rajon Rondo and the big three, and the second unit were so intense and so competitive that sometimes you'd be walking off the floor after a, a regular season win, a blowout win, one of your easy wins, and you'd already be thinking about Man, I can't wait with practice tomorrow. What's practice tomorrow gonna be like? What's that scrimmage gonna be like? You said fights broke out, it would get physical. Doc, Doc would have to blow the whistle and say, like, you guys gotta stop. And sometimes people would shout back, Doc, we need one more quarter up in here, yeah. one more quarter to play. So what's so so you kind of leave it there? What's this was is there a fight, an altercation, a story you remember? Did the second unit ever beat the first
0: unit? Is it like what what's your what's your best Celtics practice story? Well, it's a few, Zach. And look, here's the thing. We we not only couldn't wait to get to practice, we used to talk noise right after the game. Like, all right, Blue, we're going to bust their ass tomorrow. Like, that's what it was. And we looked forward to our practices the next day. And we had so many fights. Like, I could remember a time where, you know, practices got so heated where – After practice, we would still want to go at it. So this was one practice, right? We going at it. And Doc shut practice down. We begging him for another quarter. He's like, that's it. That's it. That's it. And he got mad because KG and Leon going at it, right? Leon actually was giving KG that work that day and Leon was talking noise and KG was like, who are you? What's your name? I don't even know you. So doc felt the tension and he's like, that's it. That's enough of practice. So we still wanted to keep going. And so we were still battling for minutes between myself, big baby and Leon Poe. So after practice, we, started uh, playing one-on-ones to five on a low block. I'm talking about physical. Like, the only way it was a foul being called with it was that it had to be something flagrant. And so we started calling it G-unit runs, right? But after that practice, it was called G-unit runs. So Leon and Big Baby, they already got some tension because they battling. Sometimes Doc would come in with Leon to replace me or sub me out or be myself. Sometimes he'll roll with Big Baby, so they already compete, and so they guarding each other. Big Baby ball, he tries quick spin, and Leon accidentally catch him with an elbow to his nose. Right, it was a complete accident, and so Big Baby like, man, nah, it's still my ball. That's a foul. That's a foul. Leon's like, man, hell nah, that ain't no damn foul. So Big Baby put his face, and he see blood. So he see blood. He was like. You just bust me in my nose. You just bust me in my nose. Boo. They get the they get the pushing. Next thing you know, boo, boo, boom, boom, boom. They get the swing of blows, like real punches. Like I'm talking about connecting. We had to go, we we breaking it up. It's blood everywhere. I got blood all over my jersey. But that's how real it got at practice, and that's how competitive it was in the G unit runs. Like it was getting real. It used to get so personal that Doc used to come in and say hey man listen like I don't mind the noise talking but now y'all starting to hit below the belt and guess what we would go out there and still hit below the belt like some of the things that were being said at practice was crazy I'll tell you another story it wasn't just at practice right it was competitive at shoot around with the coaches and the players meaning Tibbs will take an hour to break down defensive sets while we would go through the other team plays. And KG, if he would disagree with Tibbs, he would say, man, hey, Perk, Rondo, hey, listen to me, man. Lock in right here. This MF I don't know what he's talking about. He never played the game of basketball. And then Doc would come in and say, Kevin, I don't want to hear that. We're going to do it our way or no way. we go going to do it this way. Now get it right. So, Rondo tried that, right? So he CKG pulling it off or, of, you know, being disrespectful. So we just played the Detroit Pistons and lost game one in the Eastern Conference Finals. Rip Hamilton had like 35. So we coming in we going through shoot around and Tibbs is going through Chauncey Billups back down, you know, in a low post. So Rondo just sitting up there like, man, like his body language sucked. So Doc was like, Rondo, you got a problem? He was like, yeah, we sitting up here going over Chauncey plays. We should be going over real plays. He just busts Ray ass, right? So that's what he saying. So now Doc, Doc heated. Doc like, I'm the coach. I say what I want to say. So Rondo like, man, whatever. So Doc get pissed. Doc ball up his fist. was like, what you want to do? I kick your ass. So we had to break it up. Doc was really about to put them hands on Rondo, and we – we clown Rondo to this day like, bro, Doc was about to get to know you today. He was like, man, whatever. <laughs> he was like, yeah, Doc was about to get to know you. But it was that tense. But everybody wanted to win that bad, Zach, and make it work.
1: I'm going to give you a few more quick ones. I'm not going to – this is too good. I'm not letting you go. I don't care if we <laughs> pass the time. Um, I'm just going to read a, a two sentences from the book, and I'm going to make you give them context to the listeners. Because I was reading this like, oh man, I don't think I knew this story. I gaze up at KG as he takes a hit and lets the smoke out slowly. A thought comes to me, a conclusion, that there's probably nobody in the world who could be more intense than KG after nine or 10 straight hours of smoking weed. Please explain.
0: <laughs> so, so, it's like, so, Zach, you have to realize that after the championship, see, it it wasn't the champagne popping, right? That people don't realize that how we enjoyed ourselves. It wasn't that, like, that was cool, the ceremony. It was after that, when we went to KG House, right? And we had it all planned out. We had our liquor, we had our marijuana, and I just couldn't stand it no more. I literally woke up and he was still smoking and still hype, and it was just weed just coming. I'm sitting up and saying to myself, Have you not had enough? I mean, I've been done since the first one. I've been done since two o'clock. Here we are, it's eight o'clock, and you still going. He literally hadn't slept in two days. He was that fired up. But KG always said, He said, Boy, when we win this championship, ain't nobody going to be able to tell me nothing. I'm going to get so much weed. I'm going to get so blow. Y'all ain't going to even understand. And we thought he was just hyping himself up saying that, but he was telling the truth. And he actually done it, Zach. He actually done it.
1: That's just a good teaser for more content about Kevin Garnett. I'm not going to give any more KG content away. Uh, real quick, since these guys are still relevant, you then transition to the Thunder. And the story of you getting traded to the Thunder, it, it there's there's new. It's a well known sort of landmark trade among Boston people, but there's new stories that you reveal in, in this book, and I don't want to spoil them. I think they're good stories, and there's stuff I didn't know about that trade and how it went down, and who supported it and who opposed it mm. within the Celtics. There was a vote that took place, and I think there's still some probably some hard feelings about that vote. <laughs> um, you go to the Thunder when they're the big the Harden Westbrook Durant trio is just coming up. Mm-hmm. and you talk in there about how you could already see signs that th- there were going to be fractures here eventually. And, right. And, 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 and we don't need to necessarily get into that. But you talk about James, who's obviously now in Philly, on a team that has championship aspirations. Yeah. You say people in the media have been talking about James and his performances in the playoffs for a decade. I don't buy any of the talk about him not being able to handle the pressure at big moments. And a lot of this conversation ultimately connects him back to him, not showing up to ball in the 2012 finals. That's heat thunder. The only time in his career, as I write this, that he's found himself on the game's biggest stage. You go on to say that you think he succumbed to all the, all the Miami-ness of the city of Miami. And that, that may be the explanation for why he didn't play well in that series. But what I want to ask you is, do you really not buy the talk of him underperforming in big games? Because I think he's underperformed in big games. And are you optimistic about the Sixers' chances this year that he will show up in big games?
0: Well, well, Zach, here's the thing. I've seen James rise to the occasion so many times when it mattered the most. I remember game five over the Western Conference before we even made it to the championship that year, in san antonio when he took over the fourth quarter yeah, that's I, 11 years ago I, I know i know but what i'm saying is i'm just going back and revisiting the times that i've seen him take it take over and the only team that stood in his way just think about it if it's if it's no kevin durant and golden state james harden make it to the nba finals one time with the houston Rockets. like almost did any
1: almost did anyway he
0: almost did anyway so my thing was, was that I understand what people are saying, but I still believe that he has it in him to get there. I still think long as he have another guy that's capable of taking over, like a Joel and B, I think James Harden could do enough to get the team over the hump. I just think that he's not that Steph Curry, or he's not that Kevin Durant, or he's not that LeBron James that could actually take you over the hump but he can't be an Anthony Davis. He can't be a Kyrie Irving. He can't be that type of player. And I believe he still can't be right now. Right now with the Sixers, he's healthy. He's in shape. He has the pieces around him. And here's the thing about James. The thing about James is, is that you need a dog around him. One dog. One dog with talent. And that dog is, is P.J. Tucker. See, he has P.J. Tucker and he has that enforcer and he has that big brother that's going to hold him accountable but also have his back, you're going to get the best version of a James Harden. Now, do I still think the Celtics have the deepest roster in the league? Yes. Do I still think the Milwaukee Bucks are great and I would never doubt Giannis Antetokounmpo? Yes. But I will say this, Zach, the Philadelphia <laughs> 76 sisters are right there. And I'm telling you, Joel Embiid has the capability of being the best player in any series that he's in. And with that being said, I think that takes the pressure off of James Harden. And this is why me and RJ had a conversation, a debate about this, when he was saying, oh, in order for Philly to go to the next level, he need more out of James. I'm like, no, that 21-11 and is just fine as on on, on, long as he's shooting the ball efficient." But right now I think James knows that this window is right there. And I think he knows what he has in Joel and B and the and Tyrese Maxey and the depth in the 76ers roster. I'm not picking them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they if they beat or represent the East this year.
1: I have another criticism for you. You ready?
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: So you write about the twenty twelve finals as, as sort of a landmark finals. Thunder Heat, it's LeBron's first title bouncing well. back from the mavs series the year before it's ultimately the end of the harden westbrook durant thunder harden is traded before the, the following season and the team never gets back to the finals and obviously those guys eventually all scatter all through that all through that section of the book i was wondering when is big perk gonna get into the the fact that big perk's minutes were a big talking point in that series about like can Perk defend the small ball heat with Bosch at the five? Should the Thunder bring Perk off the bench and start small? I kept waiting for like because you hit you hit all the big issues in that series, but I I covered that series. That was a big talking point in the series, and it was about you and I and it's and I was waiting for you to address it. So address it, I guess, like the numbers on a house. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
0: you you know what's crazy though, Zach, is that. Scott Brooks and I actually had our first fallout behind it. And I actually said in the media, I called Scott Brooks out because I said, if they're going to switch and I'm open, how about trusting? Because, you know, we got to get some touches in the paint. It can't just be perimeter scoring, right? Scott Brooks come in and he go crazy in the locker room. So me and him in a heated argument in between one of those uh, games during that series while we was in Miami in the locker room. I mean, we going at it, like back and forth. I'm talking about he yelling at me, I'm yelling at him. And I just remember, you know, everyone kept saying they should go small, they should go small. But what people have to realize is this, right? I allowed Sergey Ibaka to be the best version of Sergey Bach. right? So during that time, when we made it to the finals, I was the one that guarded Dirk. I was the one that guarded Tim Duncan. I was the one that actually guarded the guys because what we figured out in order for us to make this work and be that dynamic tandem was that I was going to be the one to guard while Serge was going to be the one to actually roam and block shots, which he was great at doing. And so it was like, at that point in time, I think Scott Brooks was like, you know what? Nah, we're going to ride with Perk. We've been riding with Perk. And Zach, I mean, do you really think I was going to just, you know, <laughs> put myself down in my book during the course of that moment? Because, look, we wasn't winning that series anyway, okay? We wasn't, whether the, we would have went small or not, because our focus wasn't there. And I saw that after we won the Western Conference Finals. So I I could always see when the team celebrates how they feel like I had already been there before. So winning the conference finals meant everything to them. It didn't mean nothing to me. I was trying to stay the course because I knew we was going against a veteran ball club that was angry. So it really wasn't nothing that I could do. And by the way, Not pointing the finger, but I did have 13 and I think 10 or 11 in one of those games in Miami. Now, I wasn't the one that went from averaging 18 to 20 points to averaging eight. Okay. I wasn't that guy, Zach. So I couldn't put that in the book because I felt like I didn't do no wrong.
1: Can I ask you one more question? Go ahead. (laughs) Um, This is a question that was lingering with me after I read the book. The book, for people who don't know your background, your family background, your essentially raised by your grandparents and your grandfather most, most uh, specifically Uh, your mother was shot and killed when you were five,
0: five years old. Yeah.
1: And your dad went to play overseas in New Zealand when you were two, I think. Right. Yeah. And, and essentially never came back into your life. Although you, you tease in the books that there are points where he, he makes an attempt. I think you're in junior high and the one you write about come into your life. And so the the book left me an un, unanswered a question. Do you have a relationship with your dad today?
0: Um, I don't. I, I I don't have a relationship where we talk. Um, but so let me tell you how weird this is. But let me tell you how mature I am. Right. So my dad, <laughs> my dad actually has a son that is a year younger than my oldest son. Right. They talk all the time. The son, my dad. Yeah, my my brother, my little brother, I don't talk to him, but my son talks to him because I feel like it's, despite whether or not I want to have a relationship with him, it still shouldn't stop what happens or how it impacts these children. Like, if he want to call and have an open line of communication with his grandchildren, I'm okay with that. And the crazy thing about it is this, Zach, I'm not even mad at him. Like, I don't have, like, no hate in my heart or nothing, that, nothing to that nature. Because if I did, I wouldn't even want to be bothered with or I wouldn't even let him be bothered with his grandchildren. It's just to the fact that if you didn't miss so much time out of your child life and your child that needed you the most, what can we go back and talk about? I definitely don't want to go back and revisit my past or what you should have done or what you could have helped with. So when we get in the room, I don't really know you and you don't know me. So we like, it's like, okay, what are we talking about? We can talk about basketball. I can be cordial. We can talk about hoop all day. We can watch a game. But like, you could call call your daughter-in-law, who's my wife. You could call her. I'm okay with that. Hell, you could call me. I'm not picking up the phone to call him though. And so what happens is, is that when my dad got married, right? Instead of him reaching out, his wife actually reach out more than him. And that's what pisses me off even more, what pisses me off. Because I'm like, you don't have to have your wife reach out. You could just reach out. Like, I'm not mad at you. I'm going to pick up the phone. We could talk, chop it up about whatever you want to talk about. And I'm cool with it. But why is still to this point that you got to have a middle person that reach out to me when I never, like, my phone number been the same for the last 15 years. So that's what that's where is at with our relationship. Like, we're not beefing. I'm not mad. Like, we follow each other on social media. They like my pictures. They comment under my pictures. My son and my little brother talk, and they have an open line of communication. I'm okay with it.
1: This is all just the tip of the iceberg for what's in this book, The Education of Kendrick Perkins. Um, it's an awesome book. It really is. And it, it, like I said, at the start, I I expected a hundred pages on the Celtics, 75 pages (laughs) on the Thunder, you know, some stuff on LeBron. And there's a lot of stuff on LeBron here that we didn't get into. I I did not expect all the detours through cultural history, black history, Beaumont, Texas uh, politics. It's really just, it's, I, 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 it's, 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 goes in a lot of interesting directions and it was a really fun read i've knocked it out in two days and i'm really glad i did and um i'm not just saying this because we're colleagues perk but it's it's uh it was cool to read the book knowing you i don't know you as well as i'd like to know you life is just so busy that you know we don't right. just get to chop it up the way we'd like to but um i, I tell people all the time hey you don't know the work he's putting in and i just in an industry that's competitive and sometimes cutthroat your interest has always been in, in lifting the people around you up. And you're you're always trying to make me and others look their best on TV in whatever format we're working together. And that's really deeply appreciated. And this book is, is a really, really fun read and a good read and an interesting read. So congratulations on the book. People, The Education of Kendrick Perkins, go out, buy it, read it. Perk, I know you got, you're probably on freaking Kimmel in two nights. I don't know what you got going on. I know you got a lot of
0: stuff going on. I appreciate you lending me a little time. Well, Zach, I appreciate you, my brother, and thank you so much for having me on, man. And I'm not your colleague. I'm your friend and your brother. Okay. Okay. I got to correct you at times, though. I know. I know. But I That's I cool. You. Much love, Zach. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate you reading the book. Hey, when I got your text last night, you was like, I wasn't expecting this. And then I i text you back i said what you wasn't expecting greatness (laughs) no it's that the quality was expected
1: the topic the variety of topics was not but people have to find that out for themselves and believe me if you think these are some kg stories and some Russ stories there's a lot more in the book perk man i will see you in la soon be well best to your family
0: all right thank you zach thanks for having me on same to you my brother